0: I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick
1: ass. Oh and I'm all out of bubble gum. Oh, shit. Oh. Sputter I will! And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 51 for February 2016, first one of the year.
0: I'm Simon, and if I could recommend one film in which a man dresses as a woman, or is it a woman dressed as a man? It'd be the time-bending, gender-swapping, head-scratching predestination from the Spearig Brothers. Um, I've actually already recommended this before, it's good fun.
1: Okay, is it a new one?
0: Uh, it's, about a, uh, mm, it's about a year or two ago. Okay. Uh, Ethan Hawke.
1: Uh, ah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, really good fun. Uh, nutty I'm Duncan And I'm hoping The rumour that Jet Li and Tony Jar Will appear in Vin Diesel's Return to Triple X 3 I hope it's true Because that would Literally be the Difference between Me seeing the film And not So make it happen Vin uh, Yeah <laughs> So what have you Been watching
0: Alright uh, Look I watched Dolls from 1987 This is director Stuart Gordon uh, Who gave us Reanimated from Beyond uh, And it's kind of mirroring what would Have been hell, One hell of a Black comedy Threesome Because Dolls from 87 just wasn't as quirky, and its pace seemed kind of off. It's almost half over before the creepy dolls start menacing the guests of a a spooky, lightning-lit house in the middle of nowhere, and that's too long to wait. Even if we do get a wonderfully murderous teddy bear dream sequence in the opening few minutes, uh, fortunately the dolls themselves look really fantastic, mostly brought to to life by lovely stop-motion animation. But the film lacks the spirit of Gordon's first two great and and ghoulish flicks. Right. Um, I watched The Guest. The film which Dan Stevens left Downton Abbey to make, Mm -hmm. which means nothing to me, eh? (laughs) Really nothing. But as I discovered when I fired up the internet, it meant a whole lot to a whole lot of disgruntled Downton fans. I mean, you're some bitter, bitter people, eh? (laughs) Just calm down. Anyway, the guest has Stevens in American accent mode as a soldier returning from the Middle East and staying with the family of a dead comrade, a family you slowly discover that Stevens might be a little more, you know, psychopathically murderous than they'd expected. (laughs) Um, Dan Stevens is great. He's ridiculously handsome. Menacing when required And given to nice comic touches as well Director Adam Wingard has made the sort of film Which would have been a, a sleeper on v- VHS in the 90s mm. uh, Low budget fun with a few frights A bit of action And winking comedy And so clearly I loved it um, mm. Also had uh, Mica Monroe from It Follows um, The lead from It Follows Okay yeah still got to watch that well. Yeah oh that's great um, Ghost Ship from 2002 Ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Which lured me in with a ridiculous opening scene That had like a load of You know the film a load of folk waltzing on a dance floor, just being cut in two by a cable. And I thought, okay, I'm sticking with it now. That is literally the best thing in that bite. It is totally the best thing. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but then it let me down by being one of those films where people sort of wander around dark and go- the dark and ghost ship of the title, getting knocked off in really unimaginative kind of ways. Mm. It's kind of fun playing Watch the Stars in the making, though. Mm. Uh, supporting a slumming Gabriel Burner, Carl Urban, and Juliana Margulies. Isaiah Washington, shortly to shame himself in Grey's Anatomy. Is in it as well Along with Aussie Almost star Alex Demetriatus Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah. And the film was reminded reminder Of that brief period Where like industrial New metal would crop up Sounding incredibly Out of place in horror movies <laughs> Yeah that, that, I mean that music Is terrible
1: Yeah And I remember That was around the time When they had A whole bunch of those ones uh, It was kind of like That event horizon And, yep. and there was um. Was that other one, that terrible virus and all sure. those things? All and, that, and they ones. all
0: had that really fast editing style and, yeah. and, and a lot of rock music going on. Yeah. And, they, and and none of them were very scary, although Event Horizon's
1: got a lot of fans. Yeah, yeah. But that kind of inexplicable character behavior as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, on the Town, I mean, from Ghost Ship to On the Town, you know, an OK Gene Kelly musical that season partnered with hot young thing of the moment, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Uh, as Navy boys, 24 hours shore leave in New York to find love There's a handful of good numbers But no, really for me, knock 'em dead classics And part of the reason could be because Sinatra is no dancer right. He does okay But it seems clear that Kelly is working down to Frank's level mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the only standout numbers are when Kelly gets free reign to dance with other partners Including his talented co-star
1: mm-hmm.
0: Now Voyager One of her six Oscar-nominated performances from Bette Davis Now Voyager has dated someone but still has Davis in fine form romancing and being romanced by a suave Paul Henreid. Smoking has seldom seemed more romantic. (laughs) Um, But modern audiences would probably find the story of the love that can't be between the spinsterish Davis and the unhappily married Paul somewhat tame, even though the movie suggests in the vaguest, like, codiest way possible that they will continue this kind of sneaky affair. Right. You know, it's one of those things where you know that that's kind of what they're saying without daring to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from Astron 6 The filmmaking collective behind Deliriously entertaining genre riffs Such as Man Borg And the mm-hmm. editor which I saw last year and really enjoyed mm-hmm. I saw Father's Day And if you've got kids listening with you right now Now is the time to skip forward a minute in the podcast Or stop and return to it later because Things are going to get a little adult and I can't really avoid that uh, You see Father's Day is the story Of the hunt for the almost mythical Father's Day killer Chris Fuckman The rapist murderer who preys solely on fathers. (laughs) Uh, Now, I hear myself criticising B-Flex. In fact, I did criticise Dolls just earlier. All the time for not having the nerve or energy to live on pulpy premises. Uh, But not the team at Astron 6. (laughs) Who gleefully roll out offensive, hilarious, schlocky surprises right to the end credits and even into the end credits. It's no spoiler to say that Father's Day reaches what should be its logical conclusion after an hour And then just gets weirder and ickier until it all literally just goes to hell. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure I can say Father's Day is a great film. Um, I'm sure some people would say it's not even a good film. But it certainly keeps you on your toes. (laughs) Um, And Just a couple more uh, really quickly. All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930, which is, simply put, a timeless must-see for anyone who hasn't already seen it. It's a marvellous film. And uh, I took some time out to do a, a Duncan Eastwood recommendation. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. And, but this one struck me at the time. I watched The Red Tent. Oh,
1: right. Yeah. Which was wonderful. Yeah, you yeah. I, it.
0: I loved it. There's a couple of great moments in there. Um, when the uh, Driggable hits the ice, yeah. and there's that shot from the tent as it's lifting up. Yeah. And you're thinking, man, those guys on the ice are in trouble. But those guys in the tent, <laughs> and, sorry, in, in the balloon, they are truly. Dead. Yeah, that's right, and that's a horrific moment, you know. Yeah, and also, of course, when um, Sean Connery's character lands, and it's just him walking around all the frozen corpses. Yeah, and you, of course, everyone, you, you as an audience know, and of course, his character know, you're going to be another frozen corpse soon yourself. Yeah,
1: so. that's right. It's a, it's a very tragic, isn't it? And yeah, it, and um, it's interesting, interestingly done with the framing story of him, uh, in, a, in a, imagining his own kangaroo court in his and his yeah bedroom basically each night haunted by the ghosts
0: yeah well it was an interesting double for me because it was the first almost the first film i watched after watching uh revenant which i watched the mm-hmm. revenant which i watched this month as well and just seeing those two sort of tales of su- survival yeah you know in bleak uh bleak you know wildernesses mm. it's a really interesting how the red tinted and how the revenant did it you mm. know?
1: um and yeah how about yourself what have you been watching well, i've seen a lot because right been a I, while. I figured i figured mm-hmm, yeah um, I was in a bit of a romantic mood, so I watched Serendipity, which has Aww. product of its time written all over it. The time is 2001, to be precise, summed up with the king of the romantic comedy, John Cusack, hot off the heels of high fidelity, and it girl of the same year, courtesy of Pearl Harbor, Kate Beckinsale, using karma and will of the universe to find each other seven years after a magical one night encounter. Uh, Cusack has a real standout moment of non-verbal acting when he is given a gift by his fiance that he knows will lead him back to his long lost love, and in this moment he runs through like the gamut of emotions written on his face, like disbelief, inevitability, sorrow and joy. You know he knows what it means, and he's he's been searching this whole time for this woman, and of course his fiance brings mm. this woman into his own life, and it's 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 a really nice moment of like I said non-verbal acting. I really enjoyed that. But which makes it all the more annoying that it is followed up with a double dose of what may be the first instance of the notorious off screen breakup disease that we have lamented striking the genre like an epidemic. And well, at least they use Cusacs for a narrative trick, though. No. Um, continuing with the romantic theme, I watch The Bridges of Madison County, Aww. which is elevated from the schmaltzy source material through a good framing story and gentle direction from eastward. Um, a streep can do the stuff in its sleep. Uh, but it's Clint who's a revelation here. Like, never have you seen him so open, kind, and soulful. There's this moment where he's telling a story to Streep about his travels. And I, it just struck me. I, I was like, I've never seen literally never seen him like this in my entire yeah. life in any film. Because you think, oh, think about all the films, Unforgiven and Gran Torino and all yeah. the Sergio Leone films.
0: I remember really enjoying their work in this film and really hating um, the, the wraparound story.
1: Oh, and right. not so much the wraparound story, but those
0: characters um, yeah. and, and maybe those performances.
1: Yeah. Staying with the 90s, Vicki Attenborough's Chaplin is all broad strokes and follows a standard biopic template with a director's famous flair for lush period production design. Uh, but a young Danny Jr., he's the reason to watch this. He's very good in that. Uh, I saw The Revenant. Ah, good. Which is a sure thing for Best Picture. And yeah, probably. Especially Best Actor this year. I think so. Uh, I thought it was stunning, riveting, emotional, and while shorn of dialogue, never plodding. So the reverse of this year's other snow set western, Hateful Eight, which I found were Tarantino's worst indulgences on display. Oh, here we go. Yeah, the kind of film you could literally edit 40 minutes out of and miss nothing. Uh, the opening scene, just, the opening scenes, like the opening half hour just goes on forever. Cut, cut, <laughs> please. Yeah. Um, there are some great scenes, though. As is always the case with Tarantino, really you know edge seat scenes. Yeah. And the performances, particularly Jennifer Jason Lee, Bruce Dern, and uh, my favorite from the TV show, uh, justified Walton Goggins. Uh, but if the Oscars wanted to address the color divide, they should have nominated Samuel Jackson's commanding performance. And just after so many of you know these performances, there really is no one who suits Tarantino's dialogue or vibe better than, than Jackson. He just yeah. seems to get him innately. On the opposite side, Ridley Scott's fingerprints are all but invisible on The Martian, which sticks a little too slavishly to its source material while having to eschew its profane language in order to meet the rating, Kristen Wiig's character being the biggest loss here. In the novel, which I've read, she's like the spikiest, funniest, most foul-mouthed character, and in the movie she just kind of gets to stand around, like, just right. kind like, of take all that dialogue out, and they just, just lose her personality too. And Matt Damon, you know, he's pretty good, but he's essentially playing himself. And um, while being pleasing, it's kind of a strangely sterile film, I found. Uh, Unlike the unique perfume, Ben Wishwar's calling card performance is riveting. The late Alan Rickman stars and a quirky Dustin Hoffman plays an Italian with all the pronunciation ability of your hosts reading the cast list for an Argento film. (laughs) 1991's Toy Soldiers. Right. South American drug dealers take over a North American prep school and the bratty students fight back. Disappointingly, not as bonkers nor unashamedly flag-waving as Red Dawn. I was, I was really hoping it was going to be like yeah. this.
0: Red Dawn's good fun, actually.
1: Oh, Red Dawn's fantastic. The original Red Dawn one, yeah. yeah. I've never seen the second one. Yeah, Who would know? Yeah. Uh, this has a mulleted Sean Astin trying to be John McClane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just brilliant. the thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a really interesting... It's kind of like almost directly between um, Goonies and Samwise Ganji. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 1991 was also a good year for sexy noir thrillers. And final analysis goes heavy on the Hitchcock with mysterious blondes, San Francisco Bay, and couples chasing each other up towers. Richard Gere, Kim Basinger, a young Uma Thurman, and the evergreen wild blue eyes of Eric Roberts, all tied up in double-crossing love affairs. The film goes from courtroom drama to just absolutely preposterous in no time at all and it has like this scheme behind it is just wildly risky like to the point of just craziness yeah basically placing yourself in prison uh for a murder um on the hope you'll get off on a technicality by like kind of chain of custody right you know like just that's what you're banking on.
0: Oh, man, you know, I've seen this film. I have. Yeah. But it's so long ago. So yeah. long ago. I couldn't tell you nothing about it,
1: except that it had, a, it had a style to it. Yeah, it had a style to it. Yeah, absolutely. And real, I mean, unashamedly Hitchcock. Yeah. Like, yeah, crazy. Um, the Spanish film Marshland, uh, with all the atmosphere of True Detective Season 1, a.k.a. the good season of True Detective, mm-hmm. Marshland boasts a duo of excellent central performances, from cops in the 1980s visiting a small town to investigate the disappearance of two sisters. While the narrative is familiar, the acting cinematography and direction are first-rate. I really recommend checking it out. It's right. incredibly shot. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, the opening's fantastic. It's got these massive shots, almost like that, from satellites. They're not, but it feels like that. And they're looking down on the marshlands, and they look like, with all the contours and the rivers and the streams running through, it looks like a brain. Mm. You're like, am I looking at what am I looking at here? And yep. It's just, uh, it's really, really good. I also saw the sumptuously filmed "I Am Love," which is set in Milan with Tilda Swinton rediscovering her passion, courtesy of the chef who provides meals for her wealthy family. The opulence on display is the most captivating part of the film, uh, as the minutiae of the upper class rituals are presented in an also hypnotic way. Uh, and Swinton is fearless in embracing a heavily sexual role, but the story is really predictable and just really dissatisfying oh right yeah the the first half i quite enjoyed i was quite quite intrigued and then it just you're just like what are you trying to say at the end of this film (laughs) um uh, but she's i mean her whole role is in italian and she's playing uh, a russian who's married into an italian family speaking russian and italian and just flawless you know wow um i also saw the marquis de grillo a quick-witted aristocrat in 19th century rome lives a life of indulgence and plays elaborate practical jokes at the expense of his family and his community. Uh, it's like a really fast-paced comedy uh, with a touch of blackadder to its absurd tone and often clever commentary on the church and local corruption. Um, the, again, first half of that is just excellent and it really rips through with the with the one-liners. I really liked it. I saw R- Rapa Nui.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, have you seen this? <laughs> no, I haven't. I I, mean, I obviously remember it when it came out. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, this was um, Kevin Reynolds yeah. who did... Um, Waterworld. Yes, and he did. Now, did he do *Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves*? Yeah, as well? yeah, he
0: did. He did. But this was, uh, I think, a big flop, right? Yes, yeah. and
1: it was the same year or a year before *Waterworld*. I think. Right. And um, yeah, so it's an adventure film set in the 18th century, um, as Easter Island natives compete in the Birdman Challenge. Each contestant, driven by love, greed, or a thirst for power, um, the final 30 minutes are, are really engrossing as the event unfolds across vertigo-inducing cliff faces. So they all have to, it's nuts. And when you watch it, they're running on these just jagged rocks with no shoes. I'm mm. sure the stuntman has shoes. They're leaping around, even the stuntman is like, that looks, you know, and just a loincloth. And you're like, yep. that looks terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and particularly, it's a lot of Kiwi actors in there. Yeah, um, that's right. And George Hinata, uh, he really excels in his Iago role as a priest manipulating the unstable clan leader. Yeah. And he and the clan leader are just are streets above everyone else who's in the film. Yeah. Um they're really playing for kind of scenery chewing and, and um they're really gleefully taking their roles through yeah. Shakespearean. The rest of them are a little bit too everyone's a bit too ripped and a bit too like I you know, I'm doing this for love and I'm doing this for the good of the right. people and they're just like they're almost in a different film and they're really good. Um and then finally I saw two gay themed films. His Secret Life about a woman discovering her deceased husband was having a seven-year affair with a man. Uh, what's more surprising is when she finds that in the wake of this grief, she can only really relate to this lover, so they kind of become uneasy friends. Yeah. Uh, it has another great wordless moment, like I spoke about with Serendipity, when she feels jealousy on her dead husband's part uh, when she sees the, the lover making out with another man. And Pride, the true story of a gay and lesbian protest group supporting striking Welsh miners in Thatcher's Britain. Uh, just look it just wins with sheer volume of likable characters. This yeah. is easily the most like likable characters you'll ever yeah, see. Yeah, I've Patrick heard about himself.
0: this film. It sounds like a really good I mean it sounds like a great premise for a film. Yeah. Pretty it's
1: fantastic. One. And and most of it, you know, like pretty accurate from what I've heard as well. You know, and that they really get some great I mean, you know, Patty Consundine, yeah, he he's magnificent in it. I like him straight away. Bill he really great in it, you know, gets those kind of great Bill Nyhe moments. Yeah. As he always does. Dominic West, um, from uh The Wire and The Hour and The Affair, um, playing this real flamboyant kind of gay character, and Imelda Staunton, um, all delivering warm and witty performances, reminding us of a little-known cooperation between two very disparate groups bound by, like, a mutual enemy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a a really enjoyable film. Like, you'd be pretty pretty hard-hearted to sit there and not, you know, kind of cheer at the end of it. Yeah. I've had a lot of new experiences
0: during the strike. Speaking in public, standing on a picket line, and now I'm in a a gay bar. There's only one difference between this and a bar in South Wales. The women. they are a lot more feminine than you.
1: (laughs) So Simon, what's the news? Well, George Miller
0: is talking about his next film. And no, it won't be a sequel to Mad Max Fury Road, unfortunately. No, Miller's thinking something a little smaller, a little more intimate. Something filmed... On an iPhone, perhaps? Right. Yeah. Yes, inspired by the Sundance hit Tangerine, he's considering going super lo fi. To be fair, I doubt he'll whip out his phone, make a film, and then release it to the multiplexes anytime soon. Uh, he did say, I oh, seriously would love to do something on the iPhone, but I suspect that's more likely to be conquering Candy Crush than then directing his next feature. <laughs> um, but he's obviously jonesing to make a smaller, more stripped back film sometime soon. So be on the lookout for a George Miller film that's maybe a little shaky, a little grainy kind of dialogue and maybe character-driven, but with a singing and dancing penguin or a supercharged chunk of, you know, Aussie muscle car. It is amazing. I mean, genuinely, if you were around like we were when mm. Mad Max was this dirty little thing you rented from the video store, yeah. you know, yeah. this grainy little thing that your parents were shocked you were watching, and now to see him, you know, yeah. being Oscar-nominated for a sequel to that film Yeah, is a fourth Mad yeah. Max movie. Yeah, and we're all taking this seriously and nobody's really, you know, blinking on their, an, an eye at it, but it's a
1: really odd thing when you think about the the, the career path to get there That's a really good book Because that's nominated for Best Picture, right? Yeah So is that the first P- th- part, part 4 Part 4 that's <laughs> ever been nominated for an Oscar? Uh,
0: yeah, was George 4 nominated? Mm. Hmm.
1: Well, I tell you what Friday the 13th Part 4 should have been Should have been Final <laughs> Chapter's my favourite <laughs> of the series Look, Simon's favourite film Jane Got a Gun It's finally been released <laughs> It has, it has and made just $800,000 on a $25 million investment. Actually, that's not bad considering. <laughs> no. And considering it's coming out in this, just in the, in the complete slew of Oscar films. Yeah. That's, yeah, surprisingly good. I would have thought maybe 80000 Yeah, yeah. It has been getting reviews that move in a small pendulum swing from wanting to kind of like it to lamenting its dullness. But what is most interesting to me and leads into a hot topic recently is that Portman was very vocal about needing needing a female director for this film, yet couldn't hold on to one, mm. and instead getting worried as Gavin O'Connor. And ironically, for one of the more discerning and successful female actors around, this personal project has slowed Portman's career to a crawl, admittedly while she's been kind of concentrating on her family, but this has reduced her time in movies for the last five years to virtual cameos. Yeah, um, She's hardly done anything, and I think one of them was like the Thor sequel or something. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So this is really, yeah, yeah, a shame. It,
0: it, yeah. It is a real shame because I mean it has, as you know, been headline fodder on spoiler it for, for years, really. And it's yeah. a real shame because there's a lot of great talent involved and in people I really like. Yeah, um, I like Gavin O'Connor, too. I thought I thought, the, I thought uh, Warrior was great, mm-hmm. um, but this film had you know C minus written all over it for. Yeah. A long time now. So it's a, it's a, it's a real shame. Yeah, it's it a, is. You know, it's watching something slowly fall apart and, you know, you, you kind of knew what the adventure... The odds of it coming out and being a, a success were so against it.
1: Yeah, which is a shame. Um, and also because Portman, particularly, people have kind of been saying she's nothing... The character's nothing special and she's nothing special in this film. Right. So if to be like a real personal labour of love you kind of got to her and people like, Meh. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a bit of a shame. You'd almost want it to be a crashing, like spectacular failure, then kind of be just be hitting people firmly in the middle of the road.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know? No, exactly. Exactly. Real sad. Look, the Sundance Film Festival are showing up some fascinating films from The Birth of a Nation, which raked in a massive seventeen and a half million dollar sale. Oh. That's amazing, eh? So that's the remake of D. W. Griffiths. It is, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> You guys might want to check that on IMDb to make sure we're right. <laughs> to our local doco, Tickled, whose success <laughs> I've been following feverishly on Facebook. But my favourite Sundance story has got to be the bizarre reaction to the bizarre-sounding Swiss Army Man, uh, otherwise known as the film in which Daniel Radcliffe plays a farting corpse. <laughs> uh, that's right, a farting corpse. In fact, in the film's opening moments, apparently, Paul Dano rides Radcliffe across the ocean like a jet ski, powered by Radcliffe's flatulence. <laughs> Um, and did we mention he also sports an erection throughout most of the film? Which led to my favourite description of the film on one side as the farting boner corpse movie. <laughs> anyway, it all proved too much for the Sundance audiences who simply walked out apparently. And yet, now there's been a backlash to, well, the backlash, the directing team of the Daniels won the Best Director Award at Sundance, uh, reminding me of the way Tree of Life was booed by the audience at Cannes before it went on to win the Palm d'Or festival, folk. So fickle,
1: yeah, yeah. Real life really could have done with the fighting corpse though. <laughs> yeah, totally. would it have really livened us. it up, eh? Hey. Yeah, <laughs> just one of those CGI dinosaurs on the fighting corpse yeah, with of Daniel. A boner. Radcliffe, with a minor, obviously. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Daniel Radcliffe is really out there, isn't he? Like in his choices. Yeah, yeah, he really is. He really is. Yeah.
0: Um, what's that uh, magic? Uh, now you now you see it, or mm-hmm. now you see, now you see me? me? Yeah. So there's a sequel to that, and I saw the trailer for that recently, and he shows up right at the end, which is fantastic. It's the really? best moment in the trailer. And he just turns around and flubs some cards and just, like, looks perplexed. And <laughs> I just love it. You know, the greatest magician in the world, and you can't do a simple card trick.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a great tease. Well, the apparent true story of how three icons panicked together on the day of 9-11 and tried to drive out of New York when all the flights were grounded. Stockard Channing as Elizabeth Taylor, Brian Cox as Marlon Brando, and the controversy baiting casting of Joseph Fiennes as Michael Jackson. Uh, it promises to be a lighthearted role but in this Hollywood hotbed of racial diversity, discussions like this are probably likely to cause a firestorm. So yeah, yeah I like that, they've got a white guy to play a black guy who looks like a white yeah, guy. Yeah,
0: look, when I heard this, I, it's outrageous. It is true. I mean, to to think of it, uh, uh, particularly in this year, yeah. in in yeah. which coloured actors have no show in the in the Oscars, just yeah. nothing, and then to announce this. But then I saw a, a, a shot. A quite recent footage of Michael Jackson I'm thinking, yeah, but no one in the world Actually looks like that man yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to say, no one looked like him at the end I mean, I don't know who you'd cast to play that yeah. character, believably But yeah, there was no way this announcement I mean, I think if I was Fine, I mean, I don't know what else he's got going on But yeah. I, I might have second guessed this one a bit eh, And just, you know
1: <laughs>
0: And finally, the trailer for You're Killing Me is out This low budget horror comedy might just be a genre first A gay horror comedy uh, the trailer definitely looks on the low end of the low budget, but the film has been getting decent re- reviews and it's done well at festival screenings. Who knows? Maybe we'll have the horror version of Gaby on our hands. Oh, nice. Um, and I'd like to see that. Yeah, yeah, that would be great.
1: This is the worst timing, the worst timing I could ever imagine. I have my surgery, my oral surgery coming. What surgery? Oral surgery. Corrective teeth surgery. What is that?
0: Braces.
1: Braces? Yes. You don't need braces? Yes, I do. fine? straight? I need surgery. I need corrective oral surgery. Honey, you got struck
0: by lightning that time in Tahoe you want a vacation. I don't think braces is a good idea. And now it's time for No Comps, the section film, where we go out and review and watch and review uh, a new film and release. And, of course, uh, Oscar's coming up. So we yeah. decided to review an Oscar-nominated film, and we watched The Danish Girl, starring Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander, directed by Tom
1: Hooper. In 1920s Copenhagen, successful landscape artist Ina Wagner stands in for a female model for his wife Gerda's latest portrait. After wearing female clothes, Ina's feminine side is awakened and he and Gerda dress him up as Lily taking out the new girl to parties while becoming the muse of Gerda's art. But soon Ina begins to disappear and Lily takes over Gerda's husband completely until they have to address their future together. As pretty as a painting and as
0: cautiously cold as possible. The Danish Guild is a sort of biopic designed to offend no one, I thought. Uh, I get that making a safe film means the Danish film will potentially reach a wider audience. It's so restrained, I felt, it won't truly move much of that audience either.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: Um, Outside of a brief tucking scene, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all very safely tasteful. Hooper is not a director with, you know, a really challenging style, but it's often lovely to look at. The set design, based on the works of a Danish artist whose name... shall I? for a laugh, should we give it a go? Yeah, we'll give it a go. Uh, Wilhelm Hammershoy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounded convincing, actually. It's all down to the confidence with what yeah, you say. I, look, I loved how you said Copenhagen, by the way. <laughs>
1: um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that set design is exquisite, it's, but it's really kind of, it's almost like it's hamstrung by an excess of tastefulness. Mm.
1: Yeah, look, yeah, the cinematography is is excellent. It captures the locations of France, Germany, and especially Denmark beautifully. The landscapes that bookend the film recall Ina's meticulous paintings. Production design is near flawless and the makeup and costumes are real standouts. Considering she is across from Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne, it is Alicia Vikander who delivers the performance of the movie and provides the true heart, I thought, but this is down more to the script reducing Lily to a bit of a victim. Yeah, Um, All shy looks and luminous smiles. Redmayne's character dissolves into victimhood and unsure of her feelings, Lily appears utterly selfish. Um, Redemain and Vikander have a scene where they joke with their friends and disgust them with their happiness mm. um, at the beginning. Uh, notably, it's it's kind of quite quick witted and playful, but that's all but deserts the story as it progresses. Um, it's kind of like if only Lily showed her personality. The problem is her character doesn't really have any character. Yeah, and no scene in which just
0: two characters at the beginning of the film show how happily in love they are. It's gonna go down well. No, you know that's it's right. It's all gonna turn. But but you're right. I mean, and, and, and I think the the one of the problems I have with Lily is she doesn't have much of an arc past no. realizing what she wants to become. That's right. Yeah, you know, after that it's all certainty. Yeah, and so she becomes a way less interesting character.
1: main obviously is, is dedicated to the role. Yeah. I just don't think the role there's that much there to be dedicated to. No, and um, she doesn't really. F- and I know. <laughs> It's uh, a character becoming another character, but it doesn't feel like a real person. It feels like yeah, yeah. It's and because um, you're only just getting to know Ina initially, yeah, and then within ten minutes, basically, he's Lily. Yeah, so that transformation is like well, I don't really know what. What do we know about this guy? Like virtually nothing. Yeah, and then he's already you know um changing. Um, and there's nothing to change from particularly, other than him being a talented painter. That's literally all I know about him. Is like everyone keeps telling us he's a talented painter. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. And um, and that he had you know an encounter with um, his uh, a friend who's a boy, um, played by Matthias Schoenartz, or young Vladimir Putin, as I started calling him. Oh, I mean seriously, Hollywood, you want to do a Russian se- sequel to Seth Rogan's The Interview? Uh-huh. Get this guy <laughs> for Putin. He's a dead ringer. The first, I, like, I very rarely do I uh, break the fourth wall, shall we say, in a cinema and talk to someone next to me. But I, I just had to turn to my girlfriend. That guy looks exactly like Putin. Putin. He's Putin. <laughs> um, like
0: Putin would star in a film. Like
1: yeah, that's dangerous <laughs> that's right. okay, guy. That's, that's a great thought, by the way. Yeah. Um, look, uh, yeah, often with true stories, you have to take what is on the screen and accept what is omitted as artistic license. But um, the story here has been altered for the worse, I thought. I don't know if you've looked into the true story. A little bit actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and particularly the idea that Gerda suffered through celibacy and emotional abandonment when she was, by all accounts, a bisexual who enjoyed yeah. going out with Lily and was happily remarried in another country by the date at the end of the film. I don't yeah. want to give away the end of the film, but by those events, she was already in another country happily remarried. She wasn't around for that. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's most glaring by removing these details is, Greta becomes a victim, and the film is weirdly heterosexual. Like, it, like this, this kind of this affliction has destroyed this happy couple. Yeah, you know, and it's that it's that idea that you can just put on a dress, and then suddenly all of this happens, and this whole sexual awakening. And and I know they address it in the movie, and they say, "Well, she was in there, and she was bound to come out." And it's like, but there's no hint of anything other than he slightly, slightly fay basically at the beginning. But they go have a healthy sex life. He's completely in love with her as well. Yeah, like he—he's completely taken with her, and they—they they appear like best friends. And the thing is that she—he starts moving away. Oh, from it's her. a model relationship at the beginning. Yeah, that's right. And um, and, and incredibly equal, like a lot of equality going on for nineteen twenties, even somewhere as progressive as I imagine Denmark was yeah. in the twenties. Yeah, seems quite equal. Um she's she's got that great scene in the beginning where she's doing the portrait of the guy, and she goes on about the the, the gaze, the gaze, yeah. and, and and how the Men aren't used to being looked at. That's gaze with the head by the way. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and how men aren't used to being looked at, and they especially by a woman, and you know, uh, and she's great in that. Uh, I really liked Alicia Vikander in this.
0: Yeah, I really did too. And 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 I think we've said before her story is actually more interesting because it's an unrequited love story in a way, which is always kind of quite compelling. Mm. Uh, whereas Lily's story is just I want to be this, and that's going to happen. You yeah. know, and from about halfway into the film, that's what it becomes. And that becomes a very straight line and not so interesting journey. Whereas, you know, true or not, Goethe's story is more interesting. That's right, yeah. You know? Um, and there's also an interesting story, which I don't think is fully explored, but about an artist encouraging her husband to become a woman, reaping the creative and career benefits of that, while a home life is dismantled in the process. Yeah, that's you right. You know? So it's that weird thing of you've created your own destruction in a way, I guess, yeah. you know? But, but also you created your own career and success yeah. out of that. And that's an interesting enough story which isn't given
1: a lot. Yeah, and, and that's actually – the problem I have with that is that um, it's a great idea, but the character in that moment, I don't necessarily believe it because she uh, – basically the first time they take Lily out, really before she's drawn her, um, she sees Lily kiss another man and yeah. she's deeply affected by it, like, yeah. you know, like shattered by it. And she already realises things are unravelling at a, at a speed that she yeah, yeah, yeah. she's not comfortable with. I think it would have been better if you would have seen uh, that she was enjoying it and yeah. then too late. Tell you you know I'm not I mean? saying this is a great story in the, in, no. in the film, but That's it's true. a great potential for a story. Exactly, No, that, and I agree with you, and I just think that it's just a missed opportunity. It's like, yes. that part should have come later. She should have seen him kiss. She should have been affected. But Or maybe she even thought that that kiss was like, oh, titillation. like she was wrapped up in it, yeah. like she was making this pact with the devil or whatever. Like yeah. I just think that... She was heartbroken straight away. So then for her to for for Lily to become a muse yeah, for yeah. her seemed at odds with how she was feeling. Like suddenly yeah. she's like, Oh, you know, this this person's taken away my husband, this person is breaking my heart. But yeah, I still paint her all the time. And I just didn't believe that connect necessarily, like where she was obsessed with yeah. I get what they were trying to do, but I don't think it was executed very well. No,
0: no, I think it would have been more interesting if I'd put more time in. Yeah. Uh, put more effort into that part of the story, I guess. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. There is an interesting part actually um which I did like, which um and maybe this is just my interpretation of it, but there's a part where um Ina dresses up as Lily and then um takes off the shots of him often taking off the, the, the wig and yep. then the makeup. And there's a part early on where, you know, he takes it off and you're like, Oh yeah, there's Ina. But then he, he starts wearing it for so long, he dresses Lily for so long that, that later on in the movie he takes the wig off and all the rest of it and it feels like he's that's the lie. That person underneath, right, person right, I, and I felt that, and I felt that's what he was going for in that yep. scene. And I, and I, and that again, that's just my interpretation because it's all wordless. But maybe that, it's been a bit of a theme of this podcast. I've been enjoying the wordless acting moments, and that was one that I completely, yeah,
0: weirdly enough, the theme of this podcast is wordlessness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's why I've been speaking purely in binary. No, but I <laughs> agree. And the other one of my other favorite scenes is. um you know, we talked about the performance nature of Redmayne's acting. I mean, it's, you know, I've heard criticisms of it just all like slow winks and looking up and, mm. you know, one uh, one review, re- I stayed away from reviews, but I had one re- read one review where he's constantly saying, look up, damn it. <laughs> um, but I get that he's imitating a performance. It's, perf- it's a performance within a performance, you That's know? right, yeah. He's performing somebody performing the act of becoming a woman. Um, so he expects some sort of flourishes and... and 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 I actually really enjoyed the scene where he imitates a sex worker at a peep show. Yeah. You know, and he, he's on the, on, on the other end of it and he's mm. copying the movements and not enjoying yeah. it. It as essential experience, but just as a learning, you know? Yeah. And that's you right. can see the woman on the other side picking up on that. Yeah, that's
1: right. Um, you know,
0: another great wordless scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If anything, is probably because you know where it's headed. Um, yeah. It's probably quite a little bit repetitive and a bit slow after a while. Like I found that a little, it was kind of running over the same. Yeah. Things a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, I felt it got to the point where you knew what was happening too early in the film, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, Um, and, and you know, there's a, se- there's a bunch of scenes where he goes to these evil, unsympathetic doctors. <laughs> uh, there's brutes, you know, Yeah. and they're all rolled out to call Ina insane and attempt to strap him into straight jackets. Um, but I just don't get why they have to be categorized as such evil br- brutes when surely they're just reflecting, you know, the beliefs of the era. Yeah, that's right. You don't need to make them so. I mean, the first one you go to see, you go, "Oh yeah, I know how this is going." Yeah, that's right. It takes you no time at all. Yeah, you know,
1: identify that person as basically a barbarian. Yeah, and yeah, that's right. And there's there's parts of that are played for. It's almost played for kind of dark laughs, isn't it? Mm. You know, like yeah, we're gonna drill holes in the side of your head, and then there's another one. So I'll just be back in a moment, and obviously he's gonna go get him a straitjacket for him. So
0: yeah, and and I had
1: to have a moment too at the end of the film. I'm
0: just skipping to the end of the film, not giving too much away. But there's this uh moment where a scarf is torn away and into the wind, mm. and it just reminded me of that. You know that great Simpsons rip upon the departed, you know mm-hmm. where um, um yes. Ralph comes out and goes. The rat symbolizes obviousness. <laughs> yeah, I thought, so does that scarf.
1: Yeah, and what's even worse is that she says no, let oh it go. God, it's, that's that's just it was like it was bad enough already. Yeah, it was already blatantly obvious, and then you just like yeah yeah killed that. Yeah, that yeah. that that
0: yeah that line. Ugh. You didn't need that. You might have got away with it almost. I mean, I still yeah. would have thought, hmm, that's yeah, a bit heavy. Yeah.
1: But the line really put a hat on it, eh? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, and particularly going back to Redmayne's um, interpretation of the character, it reminds me of co-star Cloris Venning talking about Hilary Swank's performance as Brandon in Boys Don't Cry. And, uh, you know, this is years ago, she said, and it always stuck with me, and she said that while she liked Swank's performance, she thought it was good. She, she also kind of criticized Swank, saying that she played him more like a saint, like a martyr, and right. she thought that the real Brandon would have been like a cool and a bit of a dog, like heavy drinking and womanizing, right? And wouldn't have treated you know the girls that great, and you know was trying to be a guy. He's a southern, you know, he's a southern man. He's trying yeah. to be a southern man. And, yeah. and she said, you know, I that's how she. And I thought, wow, it always stuck with me as going, yeah, that's an interesting way because that's how I feel about the Danish girl as well. I kind of wish Red Main had played it more as, you know, like really engaging, having fun. Cause there's really only one scene and that's the initial party scene where she kind of yeah. goes out into public and the rest of the time she's pretty much hiding behind closed doors for most of the rest of it, you know, yeah. to a large extent. So it's like, wow, well, yeah, they have a very, for people who seem to have a wide circle of friends, they have very few friends. Yeah.
0: Uh, there's no family visits at any time. Yeah.
1: I thought that as well. I was wondering like, where, where's the family, how do the family feel about this? Yeah. And yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a very, uh, cut off. Yeah. And another area I think where the Danish girl struggles is is it doesn't really find a new way or a novel slant to look at the material, I think. Mm. There has to be another way, a relatable way to bring this to an audience that wouldn't normally find themselves watching a film about, you know, the transgender experience. Mm. And I think a great example of film that does that is is 12 Years a Slave. And I know we're talking about totally different things, but I can remember watching that film and thinking, you know, the opening and Mm -hmm. they've got this black gentleman in that period of time, walking around having conversations with white people and realize, oh, it's just like you and me now. Yeah. You know, that's what that's the world we li- and then he's kidnapped and taken into slavery. Yeah. And that's what makes that's one of the things that makes that film so great is it sets up a world where you go, oh cool, I completely get this world. Even though it's, you know, yeah. Another era completely and mm. another country completely. But I don't think that uh, I don't think Danger Guild does that. Yeah. I don't ever feel like I'm in this world and I can relate to the experiences of these characters. I mean it could work for an audience who normally might not watch the film. Which the main character is transgender um, But I'm not sure who that audience is nowadays mm. You know what I mean? I mean when you've got um, Orange is the New Black And you know, shows like that on television mm. to, to introduce this And you really have to take it so softly And cautiously yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's the audience And certainly it's not the audience listening to us talk right now No, no you know, right. they're, they're way more open And they're going to find this I think quite quite stayed. You
1: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like you say, very safe, but at the same time, it's not about taking risks, it's about engaging your audience. And I just, I agree, it's like, well, who are you trying to appeal to with this story? Mm. You know, um, I don't quite know. Because surely the transgender movement has moved well past where this is. Yeah. That's what I think. Like, the, the, And the approach that it's taking. Yeah. I mean, I have no experience to be able to say that, but it's, it's that whole thing of like, well, racism is bad, isn't it? Yeah, we've had this yeah, conversation a few well, times. Yeah, time. yeah. yeah, like, you know, uh, something like In the Heat of the Night probably wouldn't work as much now, you know what I mean? No. In, in the same way it did in the 60s. No, but
0: so. just like uh, my comparison to all of you slave, you've got to yeah. find a way to put you in that position yeah. and, and, and make it relatable for you. Yeah. Um, which this film doesn't really do. No. I wanted this to be professional,
1: efficient adult cooperative. not a lot to ask. Alas, your Mr Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. And now we're on to the top five. Here are some great examples of people playing at playing the opposite gender. Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie playing close as Albert Nobbs. As I mentioned earlier, Hilary Swank and Boys Don't Cry. But what happens when someone cares not for their craft? When slapping on a dress and eating lipstick is the level you're happy to reach in order to become a woman. Well, then you find yourself on a spoiler alert list like this, because these are the five worst drag roles in cinema.
0: Look, most terrible drag acts in the movies are a result of the filmmakers thinking men in dresses equals cheap laughs. (laughs) But not my first choice for our five lousiest drag acts. No, I'm choosing a film that really believes in what it's saying, that honestly wants to treat its Angora-clad menfolk with respect, and yet it's still absolutely awful. I'm talking, of course, about 1953's Glen or Glenda. (laughs) Uh, the film that launched auteur director Edward Jr.'s career, Glen or Glenda, seems like a film that was actually truly assembled at random. Bella Lugosi is an occasional narrator, spouting lines like, pull the strings, <laughs> in between repeated peals of thunder and lightning, uh, for some reason. I expect because stock footage, right? <laughs> uh, stock footage also crops up repeatedly, presumably because Wood had a good deal on shots of cars on the highway. <laughs> and Tame, by today's standard, SM scenes are inserted all over the shop. There's lots of cheekiness on display. Uh, my favourite might be there's this newspaper they show and it's got this headline about uh, men dressed as women, but it's clearly been taped onto a regular newspaper. <laughs> like, you can actually see it sticks out and you can actually read the article below, which has nothing to do with the headline above. It's all about taxes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And through it all, Wanda's non actor Wood, in the title, right of Glenn, the man torn between his open love for Barbara and his secret love of Kashmir. It's all so impassioned and sincere but it's also so terribly incompetent. Um, look, my only, my, my favourite line, I mean, there's some great lines, is only the infinity of the depths of a man's mind can really tell the story. How true is that?
1: Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can't go past Edward. Wood. No, no, you you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that, actually. I've yeah, never seen Glenelg uh, Glenda. I've, seen, I've yeah. seen Plan 9, but I haven't seen that yeah, one. Yeah, I've
0: seen Plan 9 as well. Glenelg Glenda is, I mean, you can't fault his passion. I mean, he is the... He cast himself in the lead. I mean, yeah. this is something he cares about, but it's still
1: terrible. <laughs> yeah. Was that like the, uh, the worst movie you've ever seen? Well, my next one will be better. <laughs> <laughs> my first one is from uh, something very close to my heart James Bond. Diamonds are forever. The major villain, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, who in the latest film was played by Christoph Waltz. And this, he appears as the least convincing woman this side of Monty Python. Thanks to his appearance as the narrator in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, actor Charles Grey was no stranger to cross-dressing, and I suspect it may even have been his idea to put James Bond's greatest nemesis in drag. A character who just two years earlier had been played by Tally Savalas and was responsible for Bond's wife's death is now chewing lipstick along with the scenery. The world's most devious mind avoids the surveillance of the best the CIA and MI6 have to offer by dressing as an elderly woman. This cover, Identity Blown Only by Her Pussy, the famous Blofeld Cat. Oh. As ridiculous as Dr. Evil got, he was never reduced to this. Really bad, really annoys me. The more I watch that, obviously I watch James Bond a bit, and it's just like, this is supposed to be your greatest... Ne- it's like dressing Darth Vader up in Vag. bag. Uh, Darth drag, Vader up yeah, yeah, yeah. in What are you doing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For my second pick, I'm going to back to film. I've discussed on this podcast previously, but one I only briefed, briefly touched on because I didn't want to spoil its crazy twist. But I figure enough time has passed, and if you're not going to watch the deliriously bonkers 1961 oddity, Homicidal, by now, then I can just go right ahead and spoil it for you. So, Homicidal is the twisted thriller of an on-the-run female killer who jacks up with reclusive ear, Warren. Weirdly, Warren is never seen, at least for the first 30-odd minutes. When he does show up, it's immediately clear to us, the viewers at least, that Emily and Warren are the same person, are actually the same actress. Sure, when she's dressed as Warren, she's dubbed by someone with a huskier voice, but there's no getting away from the fact that Warren is a woman. (laughs) Obviously a woman. And yet nobody in the film can tell. (laughs) The film believes that it's got away with this great sleight of hand. There's a reveal at the end, which of course you'll see coming, because you know that reveal has to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Yet it doesn't ruin the enjoyment of a film where a bunch of characters believe that a woman dressed unconvincingly as a man is actually a man for a good seventy minutes. (laughs) It makes no sense. And yet the ridiculous implausibility of it all makes it also just delirious entertainment. It'd be like being the only person sitting ringside at WrestleMania who knows it's fake.
1: <laughs> I love it. It just reminds me of um, like the the three, you know, an adaptation. Oh, yeah, of, yeah, the, yeah. The movie yeah. where, you know, that all three major protagonists are the same person. Yeah. And <laughs> Nicolas Cage trying to explain to himself, well, to his twin brother. Yeah, but in the reality of the film, how does this show on screen? Like, how does this work? Yeah. But everyone thinks it's genius. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's how this got made.
0: Oh, yeah, it, it's just amazing. The first time it it, it happens and, and Warren walks on screen, I'm like, what? <laughs> and then they all treat
1: him like you know, it's this guy. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> oh, so good. Well, that's that's good because that leads me straight into my one. It was very similar. Look, the Boondock Saints is a crazy cult hit of a film. There's a lot to like about the unpredictable and unique twist the film takes. Perhaps the most surprising is Willem Defoe's outrageous FBI agent on the trail of the murderous antiheroes of the title. As Paul Smecker, Defoe de- delivers one of the most unforgettable cop breakdowns of a crime scene you're ever likely to see. Operatic screaming and sweating, much to the confusion of the straight laced cops listening to their superior. When Defoe changes sides and decides to help the Saints kill mobsters, he wastes no time in dressing up and drag to infiltrate the enemy's fortress. In a reveal as horrifying as the end of Don't Look Now, the foe turns around and looks less like a woman and more like Willem Defoe in drag. Yeah. Uh, what's more mystifying is that the gangsters he infiltrated think he is the most attractive woman they've ever seen and continue to make out with him. <laughs> His jawline, Adam's apple, walk, voice, crazy eyes, and shark teeth grin don't tip them off. It's that Defoe's wig finally slips off. Unlike them, you've never been less surprised at a drag reveal in your life. Well, except for the other dra- drag acts on this top five list. Yeah, yeah, but oh, <laughs> look—it's uh,
0: the next film I'm talking about does this as well. But the whole really unconvincing drag act that some dude finds incredibly attractive. Yeah, it's it's a repeated terrible gag.
1: Yeah, it's but it's just like he walks and acts and talks and looks like. Well, William Dafoe is a freaky looking dude. Yeah, it's no drag, disguising that. Yeah, that's right. It's not you know it's not Jared Leto and yeah. you know like yeah. <laughs> Dallas Buyers club it's not yeah. like mm. it's like it looks like Willem Dafoe dude like he gets a good look at his face
0: yeah <laughs> yeah wow yeah. i haven't seen that film I, obviously incredibly famous and i really actually want to see the documentary about making of it yeah because yeah, that's so apparently incredibly revealing i'm seeing bits of it it's amazing
1: yeah. yeah and don't get me wrong i mean willem dafoe's great fun in this movie like he in a lot of ways he makes the movie he yeah. he he's he's a wild character um and but that is he's just on a He's in the right film, because it's a crazy film, but he's just on a different plane than everyone else. Fantastic. Look, the release
0: and failure of the Wayans Brothers' Fifty Shades parody, Fifty Shades of Black, this Mm -hmm. last week, has hopefully finally put a nail in the coffin of their brand of lazy pop culture referencing subpar parodies. Um, Also see the works of Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer, by the way. Mm -hmm. They're the worst, eh? Or rather, don't see them, actually. But when they're not haplessly skewering horror movie conventions, they also take time out to pop out horrid comedies like four's White Chicks. <laughs> uh, white Chicks has Keenan Ivory and Sean Wayans as FBI agents going way undercover as a pair of spoiled rich white girls called Brittany and Tiffany. So like, not just gender swap, but a race swap. Mm-hmm. And not just gender and race swap, but actually trying to look like two other proper women in the film,
1: yeah.
0: uh, which apparently they pull off, which is ridiculous because it's absolutely unconvincing. These absolutely unconvincing white girls wannabes should fool anyone, and yet in the film they do. Despite looking like an unholy cross between that elf creature who battles Hellboy and you know Hellboy Two mm-hmm. and the aliens at the end of Indiana Jones and in the <laughs> yeah. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So naturally, as I kind of hinted at before, a ridiculously red blooded man falls wildly in lust with one of the weains, as you'd expect in any half baked drag based comedy. Mm. And we can only be grateful that this terrible cliche is brought to life by Terry Cruz. <laughs> who actually mostly to during Laughs as material Mostly mm-hmm. I actually love Cruise has got the scene Where uh, one of the White girls puts on You know A thousand miles mm-hmm. uh, You know and, and in his car And he loves it Like it's <laughs> his favourite song He sings along to it And he uh, you know, There's something joyous About that guy You know Yeah he, He's very funny So um, the rest of the film though,
1: <laughs> Yeah Cru- Cruise doesn't care What he turns up in uh, like No no He doesn't really uh, yeah. No no but he's one of those guys. I think he's, you know, he's like he's like Bill Murray in movies. You know, he's just like we well, can kind of forgive him. He elevates his part of it anyway. Generally, yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. say he elevates the film, but no. He doesn't but, the but, film, but he makes but his, his own scenes a little bit of fun. Yeah, a little that's bit. Right. Right. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're on to our favorite part of the show. Your favorite part of the show, the tree of woe, named after Conan the Barbarian scene where Conan, played by Arnold, gets uh, nailed up on the tree of woe to contemplate his crimes um, by the marvelously named Thulsa Doom. Uh, played by James Earl Jones. And uh, similarly, we like to nail things that bothered us for the last month up on the tree of woe and ask them to contemplate their crimes. So, Simon, what's got under your skin this month?
0: Yeah, hey, so look, everyone, remember all my dismissive reporting on ropey rumours of Tom Cruise being sought for the lead in Universal's reboot of The Mummy? Like that would ever happen. Yes, yeah, so apparently it did. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Tom Cruise is in The Mummy. Alex Kurtzman is helming, and it's due out in 2017. Right. Yeah So it turns out that this whole Monster reboot thing Is a bigger deal than I thought And the only thing I can do about it Is wander off into the desert by myself Scale the gnarled and twisted branches <laughs> Of the tree of woe And attempt to nail myself up As fodder for the circling vultures Um, Duncan I may need some help Getting my other hand up there Yeah yeah That's yeah, fine If you wouldn't mind Yeah I can call Mel Gibson as well Yeah, yeah. that's right Here I am The character's still being listed As Navy Seal Tyler Colt though So fingers crossed that That has got to change
1: Oh if you get Michael Bean, he was a good Navy SEAL. Yeah, he was, him and Sheen. Yeah.
0: Sheen up for it. Probably mm-hmm. not probably not. Yeah.
1: Maybe someone has to do the other stunt work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting then. Uh you I mean, you can't get much bigger than Tom Cruise, right? No, no, that's, that's huge. huge. I'm yeah. really amazed by that actually. Yeah. Yeah. So Duncan, what about you? Well, watching Matthew Vaughan's love letter to the James Bond films and C V cover letter to the James Bond producers, the Kingsman, I was having a great old time. Vaughn mashed up kick ass with Spy School. It also has a frankly jaw-dropping mass murder scene that just defies belief. Ah, Amazing. Amazing. Colin Firth is on fine form as a gentleman assassin, ably supported by actors of the range and calibre of Michael Caine and Mark Strong. Samuel Jackson plays against type as a nerdy megalomaniac, squeamish at the sight of blood, but happy to decimate half the world's population. The film has a gleefully absurd edge to it, which makes the final joke all the more woefully tree-worthy. On the cusp of saving the world, our young Shav Hero is promised by a Swedish princess to be allowed to do it in the asshole uh, If he succeeds in saving the world. Like the horny teenager he is, he succeeds and then rushes with champagne in hand to the princess. The second to last shot of the film is a close-up of her naked bottom. So Vaughn's deft touch dissipates to the point of not being able to tell a difference between an anal sex joke and anal sex. Yeah. <laughs> Made all the worse by the director immediately dedicating the film to his mother <laughs> and thanking her for instilling him with the qualities that make a Kingsman. Uh, it is it's just crass and alienating moment of the film that would have Austin Powers shaking his head at its blunt inappropriateness. It it was quite, it, it knocked the
0: breath out of me actually. Uh, Cause I can remember thinking the joke will be that he doesn't get to do that somehow. Something will prevent him. There will yeah. be something that stops him. Nope. There's no. her ass.
1: Yeah. And then just dedicating it to your mum, like li- li- literally two seconds later. Wow, like, that's the second. That's literally the last second, to last shot of the film. And there's he he dedicates it, you know. Wow, it's crazy. Mum must be proud. Yeah, and look, uh, apparently the studio felt the same way because in some countries this entire segment has been excised from the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, and if you watch this edited version of the film and wondered where that part went, it went on the tree of woe. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's that's crazy. Oh, uh, it just yeah. cracks me up that they had a problem with that. Yeah, exploding heads and just mass slaughter. The they um, have no problem. Yeah,
0: with. to be to be fair, that's true. Uh, the mass slaughter in the church is amazing.
1: That elevated that film for me. Like that film I was cruising along with, going, "Hey, I'm having a good time. This is this is nice, diverting, fun." I like Colin Firth, and then that, I I I sat in the in my lounge and was going. I can't believe this is happening in this yeah. movie. This without, is,
0: without revealing any spoilers, uh, the guts of uh, what they do with this character too. Yeah, that's right. It was, was um, yeah, impressive. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of good stuff in the film. It's interesting. I read an article um, talking about, and I think uh Port Bacons falls into this, characters possessing skills that they ha- have no reason to really possess. Yeah. And they, and they identified Kingsman because yeah. in no part of his training do we see him doing martial arts. Yeah. Or um, you know, becoming basically a John Woo character with gunplay, but in the end, he is. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's interesting. He can do parkour,
1: right? So he's a gymnast. Right. right. He can right. do. He can do. He's a gymnast. And he can do parkour at the beginning. That's established before he got training. Yeah. But um, but also he's insanely good at like reverse. He does the whole pixels thing where he's like reversing a car yeah. away from cops, like yeah, like swerving through traffic, reversing it like a hundred yeah, miles yeah, an hour. Yeah. I'm like, come on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> that's insane. Like, that's like Matrix style. That's yep. not just like most stunt drivers wouldn't be able to do that in the world, you know? Um so yeah, so that's quite incredible. But um but what I did like the film what what I did like it was kind of an origin story and it had a megalomaniac, you know, trying to take over the world and they managed to pack it all in the film quite yeah. quite well, sure, I thought, sure, sure. Mainly because of Colin Firth's character because he was that kind of crossover bridge character where, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I enjoyed the film, loved it to hell, recommend it. That just stood out yep. as, like, whoa. Spoiler alert. All right. Well, that was uh,
0: podcast number 51, our, 51. Our, f- our first for 2016. That's right. Yep. Hey, so, Duncan, what was your favourite film of the month?
1: Uh, favourite film was Revenant. Oh, The Revenant. Yep. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about it more coming up to Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, I yep. think so. I think so. But, uh, yeah, that was my favourite film. But uh, can I just say to um, also to recommend uh, checking out Marshland. I really enjoyed that as well. So yeah. I'm sure everyone will get through and watch The Revenant. Definitely watch on the big screen if you get a chance of The Revenant and the cinematography, standing. Um, but have a look at Marshland as well. Um, it's around. It's a pretty recent film. So yeah, um, I think it even, might, might have even got a theatrical release here for a while. I think it probably did, at yeah, yeah. So that kind of probably gives you some indication usually if a Spanish film or, yeah. you know, like a, a Italian yeah. film or something usually gets all the way over here. It's pretty good. So yeah. check that one out. And what about you? Yeah, what cool. did you enjoy? Uh, look, I obviously also enjoyed The
0: Revenant. Mm-hmm. Um, but a uh, big shout out for the guest. I mm-hmm. had an enormously good time watching that. Yep. Just a, a a fun little action packed, funny, um, schlocky B grade kind of. It just had all those marks so beautifully. It f- felt like a great little throwback of film. Um, and and came out of the left field for me. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect when I put in it, and really enjoyed it. So um, yeah, check that out, and you know, excellent. Oh well, DVD
1: or VHS. If you check it out on VHS. <laughs> So the music we're going out to is a brief little ditty, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's, it's lovely. This is Terry Crews singing A Thousand Miles.
1: Do you just have to imagine Terry Crews singing A Thousand Miles? Oh, you totally. Yeah, you go. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next month. Yes. How did you know? I love this song. Making my way downtown, walking fast, faces passing, and I'm homebound. And I need you, and I miss you. And now I wonder if I could fall into the sky. Do you think time went past me by? Cause you know I. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me